I have a joke to, to tell to start. Um, it's kind of a tough transition. <laughs> um, after hearing the story of Jonah at Sunday school, um, a little girl repeated the story at school on Monday. She was just excited about what she had learned, so she, she told her class about Jonah. And her teacher said that it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it's a very large mammal, a whale's throat is very small. So little girl, it's impossible that that, that, that actually happened. Um, the little girl said, how can that be? Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Um, irritated, the, the teacher reiterated that, listen, a whale cannot swallow a human. It's physically Impossible, she said. And undaunted, the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I will just ask Jonah. And to this, the teacher said, well, what if Jonah actually went to hell? And the little girl looked at her teacher and said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Nothing like a hell joke, right? Um, as I thought about that, do you notice that like there, there are some crazy things that Christians believe? Um, we, we believe, because it's, it's written in this book, I mean, some pretty crazy stuff, right? I mean, on page two, a snake talks, right? And we all just go, yep, that's what happened. Uh, a guy is swallowed by a fish. Uh, Moses stands in front of the Red Sea and hits it with his staff and the water parts and the Israelites can, can walk through on dry land. Um, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, a, a donkey talks in this book. Uh, the virgin birth, right? Mary, the, a virgin, becomes pregnant. Um, not just Jesus, but multiple different people walk on water. It's like on and on and on. And if you think about it, right, a lot of what we believe, if you're here and you're a Christian, a lot of what we believe sounds quite silly and quite foolish. And then if you add to that, right, then you have very famous critics of Christianity, whether it's, you know, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or kind of these quasi-famous atheists, and they'll just relentlessly mock Christians, for believing those things. They go, I cannot believe you people believe this, that the earth is young, that it wasn't evolution, you silly Christians, right? And we just get mocked endlessly. Now, how do, how do Christians respond to this kind of stuff? Usually, it's in one of a couple ways. Um, first, Christians just don't talk about it. We just ignore it, right? Let's just not talk about the hard-to-explain stuff. It's kind of like the uh, like the, the weird uncle that we all have that we just don't, right? We don't talk about Bruno. If you're a parent, you know that, right? It's just like we just kind of ignore it, right? We just don't address it. We don't talk about it. Let's not focus on the weird stuff that seems so impossible. That's one way. Another way is some Christians um, attempt to explain it away. Um, this is a lot of progressive or liberal Christians where they go, well, it's not real. It's just, it's just legends. It's a myth. The story of Jonah is just an allegory. It didn't actually happen. Uh, Jesus didn't walk on water. He walked beside water, and it was just like an illusion. And come on, we can just explain it away. And that's one way, right? You can ignore it. You can just try and explain it away. 
Or the last way is to em- embrace the foolishness. And that's actually what the Apostle Paul would encourage us to do. So, I mean, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians is where we're at, uh, the book that we're studying. We're in chapter 1, about halfway through. But in this exact passage, what Paul does is he lays out the seeming foolishness of the gospel as opposed to the supposed wisdom of the world. And Paul's whole point is not to ignore what seems to be foolishness or explain it away, but he actually encourages us, embrace the foolishness, because in the foolishness, the power of God and the wisdom of God is hidden. And so three ways that he does that in our passage. Um, He says that we believe a foolish message, according to the world. Uh, You and I are foolish people, so get ready to be offended. (laughs) And then lastly, the gospel is delivered through foolish means, right? So we've... uh, The gospel is a foolish message given to foolish people through a foolish preacher. That's what what Paul is going to lay out for us. So if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, um, we're actually going to start in verse 17 because we we ended last week in verse 17, but the thought just kind of carries through. And so we'll start reading in 17. Paul says this, "'For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel.'" And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So let's just pause there, because in that first section, verses 18 to 25, Paul is he's stressing the, the seeming foolishness of the gospel message. Now, I want to remind you of the, the context of this passage. Paul, last uh, in, in the passage before, last week we studied um, these divisions that were going on, right? These, these sophists or professional speakers would come to different towns, and part of the, the Corinthian culture and the value was that you uh, elevated these orators, you elevated these professional speakers, these sophists, and they used rhetoric and wisdom and logic and intellect, and they just tickled people's ears. And that was a huge part of the entertainment in that day. You would go and you would pay good money and you would listen to, you know, uh, I'm trying to, you know, Dionysius is coming to town and he's this professional speaker and look how amazing he is and look at how wise he is and let's listen to him, tickle our ears. And so Paul, last week, he says, I came to you with the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, or else the the cross would be emptied of his power. And now he's going to unpack verse 17, basically, and explain what he's talking about. So 
In verse 18, Paul starts by saying, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. So basically he's saying to those who are lost, those who are perishing, who want nothing to do with Jesus or God or Christianity, when they hear the gospel, the words of the cross, it sounds ridiculous. So Paul, what he says, when I came to Corinth, Paul focused on the saving fact of Jesus' crucifixion. But to a lost world, that just sounds insane. Like, one, for a couple reasons. One, crucifixion was a method of execution so crude that you wouldn't even talk about it. I think we don't, like in our day and age, we, we don't fully understand how horrific and crude crucifixion was. Um, Cicero, who's an ancient writer, he said this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, and from his ears. So the thought was, man, don't even say the word cross. It is so repugnant and disgusting. Don't even think about it. Don't look at it. Don't talk about it. So human wisdom would never lead anyone to think that that is how God would save humanity, (laughs) that God would allow his son Jesus to be crucified in order to save man. So to, to those, Paul says, who are perishing, those in the world, those lost, you preach crucifixion and they go, that's insane. That is foolishness. But notice what he says. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? So basically, he says there's two types of people. There, there are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. And you preach the same message, and you get two very different responses. To one, it sounds ridiculous, and to the other, they go, the crucifixion of Jesus is the power of God. Same message. Right? So then, then he continues, and he quotes in verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29, 14, And basically what he's doing is he's he's trying to show you that the idea of the wisdom of God being different from the wisdom of man, it's not a new idea. Even Isaiah was talking about this, right, hundreds of years before. uh, He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Basically, Paul's saying, like, this is not a new idea. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah told you that that, uh, God, in his wisdom, he's going to destroy your apparent wisdom. The wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of of man. God's going to bring them down. And then in verses 20 and 21, he just kind of keeps unpacking by asking a bunch of questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Basically, there's, you know, three types of professional experts And he's basically saying, similar to the sarcasm that Isaiah used, he says, in view of God's wisdom, like, what do you guys have to say about that? Where's the debater? Where's the wise person? Where's the scribe who has all of this apparent wisdom? Come on, guys, where are you? What do you have to say about God's wisdom? The world doesn't know God through wisdom, verse 21 And so God uses the foolishness of what the apostles preached to save those who would believe it. And in verses 22 through 24, Paul kind of gets to the crux of his point. And he, he outlines two types of people. Verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
So Paul is, is, is he's kind of unpacking this idea of why is the gospel so offensive and so foolish to people? Well, one, Jews uh, who were very religious, they demanded signs. Now, just think back um, as we've studied the gospel of John and even years ago when we studied the gospel of Matthew, how often did people come to Jesus and say, well, give us a sign? Right? It happens all the time. Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 11, John 2. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He would teach people, and then often the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes would come and say, well, just give us a sign, Jesus. Basically, like, um, authenticate the things that you're saying. We have certain Jewish messianic expectations that you have to meet, and so just do a sign, Jesus, which is ironic because think about the amount of signs Jesus did, right? He's healing people, blind people are seeing, lame people are getting up and walking. He feeds 5,000 men with, with one little bag lunch, like just over and over, all of these signs. But here's the problem. The signs that he was doing didn't fit what they thought the Messiah should be like. So they go, we don't know. Those signs don't count. Give us a sign. Right, So the, the religious people of the day, the Jews, they had God figured out. We know how God is going to work. It's like, they, do, you, do you remember the Exodus? God's going to do something like that again. Right? Moses comes and he does his signs and then God leads his people out from the tyrannical government of the day. And it's like, Jesus, just do stuff like that. Show us a sign like that. And so they wouldn't believe the message because it didn't fit their view of what God should do. So they demanded all of these signs. So those are our religious people, right? Greeks, on the other hand, so basically Paul is just, he's categorizing the world into two types of people, right? Jews, religious people, Yahweh followers, and, and Greeks who were irreligious, if you want to call it that. And Greeks don't seek signs, they don't say, show us a miracle so we'll believe. What do Greeks seek? They seek wisdom. Um, and this is true of all Greeks. Um, there was a, a Herod Heroditus. He uh, is an ancient thinker, and he wrote, all Greeks are zealous for every kind of learning. It was part of the Greek culture. We just want to be wise. We want to learn things. We want to know the, the solution to everything. So here's the Greeks' problem. It's different than the Jews' problem. The Greeks, their problem was that they had conceived a view of God that they deemed was reasonable, right? In their wisdom. Here's what God can and cannot do because we're so wise and we're so reasonable. They don't care about signs. God just has to do things that fit reason and logic. And so that was their problem. Their idea of, of a, a Christ who was crucified, it was an oxymoron to the Greeks, because the idea of, of a Christ, a Messiah, an anointed one, that conveys power, splendor, triumph. And the idea of crucifixion portrayed the opposite, weakness, humiliation, defeat. And so you go, how, how do you preach Christ crucified? It makes no sense to Greek people. They go, you're, you're taking power and strength and you're combining it with weakness and humiliation. How do those two things go together? And crucifixion was for the lowest of criminals. And so the Greeks would question, how does the cross provide any moral or philosophical standard to help me get towards salvation? How can a God 
being spirit, become incarnate, and provide a God-man atonement for sin. Right? They would go, how, how is a guy nailed to a cross decades ago, how does that help me? Right? In the, in the world's wisdom, it's, it's, that doesn't make any sense. Um, Pliny the Younger, who's also a, a first century thinker, he called the crucifixion a perverse, extravagant superstition. Right? So Greek thinkers would look at Christians and go, you guys are just superstitious, perverse people. You're putting your faith in a guy who's nailed to a cross naked, just humiliated. That's your God? They just go, that makes no sense. Like, it wasn't just foolishness. To a Greek person, Christ crucified was madness. The message of a God who got rejected by the very people he came to save, was deserted by his disciples, crucified by his enemies, seemingly powerless to do anything about it. They go, that's your God? But look at what Paul says, right? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, so we better give them signs and wisdom. No, what does Paul say? But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Notice notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right. The cross is kind of messed up. (laughs) Like, let's just not talk about it, right? It's embarrassing trying to tell people that, yes, our God was nailed to a tree and he died for us. Let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's focus on other things. No, Paul doesn't say that. He says, no, no, no. We don't preach signs. We don't preach wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block to people. A crucified Messiah was offensive to a Jew, and it was nonsensical to a Greek. And I think in that we see the problem. Both Jews and Greeks insisted that God conformed to their prior views of how a God who makes sense ought to do things. Both, right? Religious people and irreligious people, Jews and Gentiles. The problem was is that they wanted God to conform to their views of how God should do things. And so Christ crucified just seems nonsensical. But I love that rather than God giving them signs and wisdom that they demand, which God has plenty of both, what does God do? He gives them weakness and foolishness. And we go, well, why? Why, God? Why don't you just give them signs and wisdom so that more and more people will believe? Because God's power to to call forth his people to his kingdom works through a deeper wisdom than human beings recognize. Um, Recently, uh, on our road trip, we listened to the the Chronicles of Narnia on audio, Uh, and so we listened to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then we got home and we actually watched the the movie with our kids. But if you remember um, that story, Edmund kind of, he pulls a Judas move, right, and betrays his his siblings, and he goes to the White Witch, and he's, right, he's a traitor, but then Aslan rescues him and brings him back to their camp, and the white witch is just furious. And if you remember, she says, like, I have a claim on his life, right? Edmund belongs to me, and so Aslan and, and the white witch kind of confer back and forth, and Aslan agrees to go and die instead of Edmund dying. And if you remember the scene, um, Aslan is going to the stone table where he's going to die, 
and evil is represented there with all these creatures and just wickedness, and they're laughing at him, and they're mocking Aslan, and they shave his, his mane, and they beat him, and, and the witch says something along the lines of like, this is my paraphrase, you doing this isn't going to save the boy. This is just foolishness. Why would you give your own life for a traitor? And then they kill Aslan. Sorry if you've never, spoilers. They kill Aslan. And we know in, in the book, right, Susan and Lucy are watching all this happen, and they're confused. Why is Aslan doing this? And so after, as they're grieving, I want to read this. It says, at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone temple was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, and there, standing in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it, it apparently had grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan. When they were somewhat calmer, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, then she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this as an allegory of Christ's death on the cross. I mean, Paul, Paul is saying that Jews and Greeks look at a naked, bloody Jesus hanging on the cross, and they scoff and they laugh. But it's like, oh, if you only knew true wisdom... If you only knew what God was doing, you, you would not scoff and laugh. There, there is a deeper wisdom that goes beyond man's wisdom, that in the cross, God outsmarted his human creatures and nullified their worldly wisdom, that in the cross, God overpowered his enemies, but he did it with lavish grace and forgiveness, and he divested them of their strength. That's why Paul can say, right, to, to, to Jews and Greeks, it just sounds ridiculous, but look at what he says in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul, Paul says, to those whom the Spirit of God is calling, you hear the cross, and it's, it's not foolishness. You hear the cross, and you go, that is the power of God. This is why, right, and we wrestle with this as human beings. We, we wrestle with the whole, you know, God calling us, right? And we go, well, that doesn't seem fair. I want to, on my own free will, choose God. And I don't like the fact that God calls. Listen, Paul is saying, if God didn't do his work through the Holy Spirit of taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, you would never come to him you would look at the cross and go, foolishness. 
And yet, like, no one wakes up one day and says, oh, yes, now today, of my own volition, Jesus nailed to a cross seems like wisdom now. No, it is the power of God that draws you, opens your eyes, that you hear the gospel and you go, that is salvation. That's the wisdom of God. And and then Paul says, like, in verse 25, if God could be foolish, right, for the foolishness of God, I mean, he's using hyperbole here, there, there is no foolishness in God, but he's saying, if there was foolishness of God, it's wiser than men. Even God's foolishness is wiser than us. And the weakness of God, which God has no weakness, but if he could, the weakness of God is stronger than men. I mean, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways, right? It is the wisdom of God. So do people respond like this today? Um, do we get offended by the cross and seek other things? Yeah, all the time, right? We, th- we do this all the time, right? The, the message of the cross is foolishness to our world. People get actually quite angry when you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and, and, and some people are like the Jews who seek signs, right? I've, I've met people who are like, Okay, yep, uh, the gospel, the Bible, sure. But if God could just show up and just kind of do some kind of miraculous sign, then I'll believe in him. I'm sure you've met people like that. We're like, ah, I'm so close, but I just need some kind of miracle or sign, and then I'll, then I'll believe. Um, even if you think about, um, there's a whole movement This whole very, very charismatic movement where it's like I've heard pastors say, unless the gospel is accompanied by signs and wonders, then it's not the gospel. We have to show people miracles and stuff so that they'll believe. And Paul Paul says, nope, we preach Christ crucified. If they don't believe, then they don't believe, right? So we still, people seek signs all the time. Now, as far as Greeks seeking wisdom, yeah, we do that too. We reject the cross because we go in our own human wisdom. Ah, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Or, or even works righteousness is a denial of the cross because in our wisdom, it makes more sense that I kind of have to meet Jesus halfway, right? Where I go, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Now I have to earn some part of salvation because human wisdom, that just makes a little bit more sense, right? Where I have to be good enough, and if I obey enough, and if I do enough, then it's like Christ crucified plus my righteousness, and that's salvation. So even today, we, we reject the foolishness of the gospel because it just seems like it's not wisdom, and yet, Right in the cross, God displayed this deeper wisdom that is so far above our human wisdom. But according to the world, we believe a foolish message. Now, not only that, Paul goes on in verses 26 to 31 to to call all of us fools. Ready? (laughs) All right. He says, For consider your calling, verse 26, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So Paul is saying, not only is the message of the gospel seemingly foolish to the world, but you and I as Christians, we're just a foolish people. Right? Paul says to the, to the Corinthian church, remember your calling, Corinthians. You weren't wise. It's like, ouch. Uh, you weren't powerful, and you weren't of noble birth. Now, Paul's not saying that every single member of the Corinthian church was a slave with no money and they had no connections. That's not what he's saying. He's using kind of this um, broad language to describe Christians, Right? Paul is saying the wise, meaning the learned and the clever and the experienced according to worldly wisdom. Paul says the powerful, so those who are influential, someone whose wealth gives them social and political power, someone who's well-born uh, means uh, you know, noble birth. It's this idea of you were born into a high pedigree, ruling class family. Paul says, like, do you remember your calling, guys? Like, none of you were like that. But God chose you, and, and he, I mean, he slightly insults us, but you just got to get over it and embrace the foolishness, right? Because Paul says, God chose the foolish things, you and I, to do what? To shame the, the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. He chooses low and despised things, you and me, so that none of us can boast. Well, why does God choose the weak? God chooses the weak because the strong think that they're powerful enough without God. I don't need God. God chooses the lowly because the high and mighty, right, would never debase themselves by associating with a crucified Jesus. I'm too powerful and high and mighty for that. God chooses the foolish because the wise think the cross is silly as a means to save the world. Like, let me remind you, the Corinthians, the ancient world, cared a lot about pedigree and social standing and wealth and your, your, your social class and your position in life. I mean, that was kind of everything. They cared so much about that. And Paul says, God calls the slave. He calls the outcast. God calls the weak, the broken, the marginalized, those who do not have their lives figured out. That's who God calls. So do you see what's happened here? The world props up wisdom and signs and wonders, and God saves us through the cross. And the world props up wealthy, beautiful, powerful people, and God calls the weak. In calling out a people for His name, God shows no regard for the Corinthians' believers' present values. God doesn't look at people based on their merit or their worldly wisdom. God chooses them in spite of their unimpressive pedigree. And God choosing people like that, God saving the weak and the lowly and the broken, is meant to have the same effect of the cross, right? It nullifies and it shames all of the things that we boast about and all of the things that we place our, our values in, and verse 29, Paul says, he answers, why would God do this so that nobody can boast? Jesus has become all of these things to you so that you cannot boast. Nobody, nobody can boast. 
Like we boast in what? We boast in the cross. We boast in Jesus. We boast in our weaknesses. No one can boast in the kingdom. So what does it mean for us? What that means is that there is not one person in the kingdom of God who walks around with a swagger because somehow they earn the right to be there. That person doesn't exist. Right? When Billy Graham got to heaven, no one, there wasn't a standing applause for Billy Graham. Billy Graham's a nobody in the kingdom, just like you and just like me. No one walks with a swagger in the kingdom. He says, man, I have every right to be here based on my pedigree and on my wisdom and on the family I came from. Paul is saying, no, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Not a single thing that any of us possess will advantage you before the living God. Not your brilliance, not your achievement, not your money, not your prestige, not your family history, not your hard work ethic, nothing, nothing gives you a leg up for your salvation. So what the cross does, it it brings an end to human self-sufficiency. And so I want to encourage you, for us today, you need to embrace the foolishness of God calling someone like you. Just embrace it. Because it actually destroys your pride and your self-reliance knowing how foolish and weak and broken you are. And in spite of all of that, God saved you. Just embrace it. It's the power of God. So the cross is foolishness to the world. It just sounds like nonsense. You and I, God chooses and he calls the foolish, the weak, the lowly. And now Paul, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, he adds himself to the list of foolish things. (laughs) He says, the means by which the gospel comes to us is also foolishness. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and, and Him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So notice, Paul is deliberately, again, comparing himself to the sophists of the day, right? The orators, the, the, the traveling speakers, because they would come in pomp and wisdom and rhetoric and sell out stadiums, and they would give their, you know, big lofty speeches and tickle people's ears, and everyone loved the person, right? The person that was giving the message. And Paul, on purpose, contrasts himself. He says, I, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, Paul says, I didn't, I didn't actually preach anything among you except Jesus and Him crucified. Paul didn't soften, soften the message. He didn't tickle ears. He didn't just kind of pedal out things to try and, you know, sway people. He says, I mean, I came in weakness. Verse 3, literally, Paul says, I was with you in weakness. Most scholars think that Paul is actually referring to physical weakness or sickness, and we don't know what it was, but we have some hints throughout the, uh, that, that Paul was sick. He dealt with physical weakness. And he says, I came to you, and I was basically the opposite of all the sophists of the day who are strong and powerful and great. He says, I came with you sick and weakly. 
and in fear and trembling. Now, it's not fear and trembling because he was afraid of what the Corinthians would think of him. It's fear and trembling because he was speaking about a holy and awesome God, and Paul knows that he's going to be accountable for every word that he says. So just think about, like, compare Paul if you could, right? Use your imagination. The sophists come up and the chest puffed out and listen to me spew about wisdom and rhetoric for an hour. And here's Paul with his knees shaking going, I just want to tell you about Jesus who was nailed to a tree, right? Like, it's the opposite picture, isn't it? It just seems so foolish, Paul. And he says in verse 4, my my speech And my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and its power, and of power, rather. And some have said, like, what does that mean? That Paul didn't use plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Some have said, and I've had conversations with people where they said, see, Paul performed signs and miracles. That's not what he's saying in verse 4. Notice that Paul does not say demonstrations, plural, of the Spirit, but in demonstration of the Spirit. What was the demonstration of the Spirit as Paul gave a foolish message to foolish people using foolish means? What was the demonstration of the Spirit? People were saved. People believed. People were converted. So he says, I I didn't use plausible words of wisdom, but look at the demonstration of the Spirit. Corinthians, you believed the gospel. You believed what I I, I told you. I preached Christ crucified, and God saved you. The reason that this is so central, I mean, you can tell that Paul is so passionate about this, is because he doesn't want the Corinthians' faith to rest in him, but in the power of God. Their, Their faith isn't in how great of a speaker Paul was. Their faith is in the Spirit of God taking a message that seemed like nonsense and saving them through it. So the message is foolishness to the world. The people, you and me, are foolish. And the means by which God uses to draw people to Him is foolish. I I think, unfortunately, in North America, we see the, the... the obsession with these sophists, we've just taken that and, and we've done that with our pastors and our preachers. I mean, North America, you see pastors and preachers just elevated to like untouchable status. And then we delight in their book deals and in their clothing. There's literally an Instagram account, Preachers in Sneakers, and they talk about how expensive preacher shoes are, which $45 if you want to know. But we do that. Oh, wow, Stephen Furtick wore a $1,000 pair of sneakers. Look how much God's blessing him. And we just obsess over the, mess, er, the messenger rather than the message. And we just elevate these preachers. And, 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 and you, you have to realize how silly this seems to the world, what I'm doing right now. Right? People, people have asked me before, like, what do you do for work? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, besides marrying people and burying them, what do pastors do And when I explain, well, I read and study the Bible for 20 hours each week to speak to 400 people for 40 minutes explaining who Jesus is and what he's done. Can we just admit that just seems silly to the world, right? And yet Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? It's a a foolish means 
but this is what God has chosen. People are saved as they hear the proclamation of the gospel. So you just need to hear this because I never want you to fall into this trap of like elevating the messenger above the message. You need to hear it. Like your pastor is just a weak, foolish man. I mean, I get up here week after week with much fear and trembling. I, I get frustrated and I lose my temper from time to time and I get angry about things and I lose my temper with my kids I struggle like so many of you as I think that I'm failing as a husband and as a father and as a pastor. I deal with the same things that you deal with. I, I've dealt with pride and self-reliance. My flesh wants more money and comfort and I idolize things in my life. So don't ever place your faith in the messenger. Paul says, no, 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 no. We are weak, foolish people. It's Jesus. It's God who is wise and strong. Put your faith in him. Um, D.T. Niles, who was a missionary, he explained sharing the gospel so well. He said, sharing the gospel is a beggar telling other beggars where to find food. It's all it is. Right? And when pastors get up and say, touch not the Lord's anointed, I just want to throw up. Like we are just beggars saying, I know where you can find food. It's Jesus. So here's my hope. When you and I are confronted with just the, the, the seeming foolishness of the cross, that you wouldn't ignore it, right? When, that you wouldn't just go, oh, we can't talk about that because it's so embarrassing. Or how does it, that you wouldn't try and explain it away, that you wouldn't go, okay, well, I know, let me just explain how, you know, and try and, to try and appease the worldly wisdom. My hope for us is that when we hear the foolishness of the cross, that you and I would embrace it because we would see the wisdom of God in it. And when you're confronted with your own foolishness and your own weakness, that you would embrace it and that you would boast in Jesus, not in your, yourself. Because even though the world and your own flesh would look at the cross and scoff and just think, this is just folly, it's a stumbling block, that you would know because God has opened your eyes that in the cross there is the power of God unto salvation. So let me pray for us. So Jesus, I just, I just thank you so much that in your wisdom, your perfect, holy wisdom, you chose to save us through the most unlikely way. Like no human being would concoct the idea of God becoming flesh and being nailed to a cross, being buried, being raised from the dead three days later to accomplish salvation for mankind. No human being would just invent that because it seems so foolish to the world. And yet, God, to those who are being saved, to those in your grace and mercy that you are taking out hearts of stone and giving hearts of flesh, to those whom you're opening their eyes, when we look at the cross, we say, no, 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 that's not foolishness. That is wisdom and power. Help us to embrace that, Jesus, 
to just embrace the foolishness of the cross because in it we see our salvation, to embrace our own foolishness so that we don't boast in our morality and our righteousness and our goodness and our pedigree and our power or whatever, but we boast in the cross. And help us to, to embrace the, the foolishness by, by which we're saved. I mean, to, to stand up and preach Christ crucified and to see the Spirit of God saving people, it just seems so silly to the world. But God, I thank you that you have opened our eyes to see a, a deep wisdom and power in Christ crucified. And so I pray that as we continue to just week after week sing about this and preach it and study it, like God, my, my prayer is just like Paul, I don't want to know anything else except Christ crucified and that you would use that to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. God, just thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son and help us even this week just to embrace what true wisdom looks like, which is Christ crucified. And so we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.